Good evening. Good to see everybody tonight. Good to be here with you. I uh, appreciate Seth inviting me to come and do a series over the next several weeks with you. I think this is a uh, preemptive ministry strike, you know, in the sense of they're getting ready for twins to show up at any minute and <laughs> want to have that covered. So uh, I was glad to be able to hear and help out some. So uh, tonight, if you want to, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 1. We're going to kind of start in a, uh, an interesting place. The topic we're going to be looking at over the next seven weeks is Jesus changes everything. Uh, this, is a, this is a study I, I taught a, in a summer study several years ago. And uh, it's interesting since I thought that, or since I taught it, uh, this topic has come back up several other times, but it's been more in the form of a question that's, that's very closely related to this topic. And, and the question is real simple. Why Jesus? And it's interesting tonight in the catechism that we read, if you notice, uh, even though the question was how, how was it that God should become man and so forth, the, the, the central idea that they're really getting at is, why was it necessary for Jesus to be a man and also be God? Uh, and to me, this is a really, really important question. Why Jesus? Why do we need Jesus? What difference does he actually make? So over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at this issue of how Jesus changes everything. Uh, but it's also going to be more of an answer of, of why Jesus. Uh, who is he? Uh, why did he do the things he did? And what does that mean for us? So we're going to kind of be looking at a bunch of different things together. So Mark chapter 1, if you'll open up there. I thought this would be a good introduction to the whole study because uh, what we're going to focus on tonight is uh, the question that a lot of people really put to the last, but I think it's important to deal with it at the beginning, and that is how should we respond to Jesus? So we're kind of putting the cart before the horse. Uh, and I think it's important to do that in this study because as we go through, my prayer as we go through is that I'm going to learn new things about Jesus that's going to cause me to have to change. And I hope that's going to be true of you. I hope as we go through this study, we're going to see Jesus in a way in the scriptures, encounter him in such a way that's going to cause you to have to change. So if that's the case, how do we do it? And here in Mark chapter 1, great thing is, Jesus starts his ministry with that very issue in mind. So Mark chapter 1, I'm going to start right in the beginning. I want to read the first uh, almost 17 verses or so. Uh, first 20 verses, really. So we're going to read a, a large section of it, but we're only going to focus on a, a few points out of it tonight. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark begins this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. So John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flocking to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He was preaching 
Someone more powerful than I will come after me, and I am not worthy to stoop down and untie, untie the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. And as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending to him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, and in you I take great delight. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And Jesus was tempted in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels began to serve him. So after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, preaching the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, as he was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in their boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired men and followed him. Join me in prayer as I give thanks for God's word. Father, we we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word points us to the centrality of our Lord Jesus. He is before all things. All things are held together in him. He is sustaining all things, carrying all things along. And ultimately, all things will be headed up, summed up in him uh, when the kingdom comes in full and when all things are made right. And so, Father, we thank you that you've given us such a rich treasury uh, in your word that guide us and directs us and gives us the truth that we need to be properly oriented to reality, to be properly oriented to you and to one another, so that we can have hope and joy and know that the things we do together are not in vain, but are actually aimed at and focused toward uh, the days when all things will be made complete. And Father, we yearn for that, and we yearn to see our Lord face to face, And so, Father, in this study, I pray that we will see him in new and fresh ways and that our joy will be encouraged. uh, And in the end, that we'll place our ultimate confidence and hope in him. And we thank you for all these things for his great name's sake. Amen. Uh, Mark begins, I always think of Mark as being the, uh, he's, I, I imagine Mark needed to be on Ritalin or something when he was growing up. He is, his gospel is what I would call the action-packed gospel. It's very quick. Uh, a lot of times he doesn't give us a lot of details. Uh, notice, notice his genealogy. I don't know if you've ever picked up on this. His genealogy is one verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's go. Right? <laughs> Now, you go look at Matthew's gospel, and you got all these begats, right? And half the names you can't even pronounce. Luke is the same way. Goes back and gives these long genealogies. Mark is thinking about, okay, what do my people need to know about the lineage of Jesus? He's the Son of God. Let's move on. If there's anything you need to know, you don't need to know who his daddy was. You need to know who his father is. He, he is the Son of God. Now, 
It's going to take me a while to prove that in the gospel, but just bear with me. So he jumps right into it. Uh, go back and look at the other gospels as they talk about John the Baptist coming on the scene. Most of the stories are, are much longer. Here he simply tells us who John is. He is the messenger that has come to prepare the way for the Lord. And Mark immediately quotes from two texts, or really alludes uh, from a a couple of texts, and quotes one. Uh, The first thing that he says, that he quotes from or alludes to is, uh, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That is allusion to both Malachi 3 and also Exodus 32, I think. Where if you remember uh, in Exodus, the pillar of fire and the cloud would lead Israel through the wilderness. Y'all remember this? And then that was the presence of the Lord God. And so this, this text alludes to that. The other text is from Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And let me just say something about that. Where he says, prepare the way for the Lord and make his paths straight. If you go back and you look at the Hebrew text there, what, what Isaiah is given to say is very specific. It's prepare the way for Yahweh. He doesn't use a title for the Lord here. He doesn't use one of the Elohim titles. He uses his actual name. The name that the Lord God gave specifically and uniquely to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they might know the name of the one true God and that that name would be a memorial name throughout all the generations. In the ancient Near East, if you wanted to know the name of the one true God, there's only one place you could find it. And that was in and amongst the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his name is so significant in the Old Testament. Um, unfortunately, due to uh, the influence of rabbinical teaching, almost always in our Bibles, the, that name is transliterated into capital L-O-R-D into one of the titles for him. But it's so important, I think, to remember the name. Because it's what the Lord God told them to do with it. I want you to remember this name throughout all the generations because it's unique. So here in this context, what I want you to see is, and you've got to think about this to really get the point, I think, that, that Mark is making for us. As John is out preparing the way for the Lord, he is preparing the way for a God that this people that he's coming to, the people of Israel, have known for many generations. And at this point, for a millennia and a half, they've known the name of this one true God. But as John goes out and is the herald, he is saying, listen, we need to prepare the way for Yahweh. The God that we know the name of, He is about to show up. He is about to be present among us. Now think about that for a minute. Think about if we showed up at church on Sunday morning and somebody stood up and said, Hey y'all, I got great news. Jesus is going to be here this afternoon. Now, okay, given, we'd probably think the person is nuts, right? That would be the first thing we'd think. But if, if there was some reason to believe what that person was saying was credible... Think about what you'd be doing that that afternoon, right? It, it reorients your thinking to everything, and this is what John's doing. John is turning the ancient world upside down, and and let me just say that as John goes out, uh, there were other movements within Judaism at this time that were proclaiming the coming of the Messiah specifically, and they were also looking forward to the to, to God visiting His judgment. 
uh, on the whole earth, and that judgment will begin with Jerusalem. One group of them pulled out into the wilderness, which is known as Qumran. If you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a huge community that produced those scrolls, and they had fled Jerusalem because they were sure that they were living in the times of fulfillment. And if God returned, the first thing he's going to do is destroy most of Jerusalem because it's become corrupt and profane and everything else. But here's John. He comes preaching a similar message but instead of saying hey we need to get out of here and retreat he says listen y'all need to come out here and you need to get right you need to come out here and you need to prepare for the coming of this god whom we know the name of because he is coming to live amongst us and this of course is one of the great absolutely mind-blowing realities that we have in the early pages of the New Testament. That as Jesus comes on the scene, he's not another prophet like John. He, he is not another seer like Ezekiel. He's not another leader like Moses. He's somebody entirely different. He is the Lord God in human flesh. And the Bible makes no argument. The the Bible never tries to prove that reality. It simply states that fact, and then we have to deal with it. (laughs) We have to either accept it or reject it. That's really the only thing you can do with it. I mean, how do you prove it to begin with? Now, Jesus gives signs that points to that reality. But in the end, he's going to be God who comes and dwells among his people. And let me just say that that as I've read through the Gospels over the last couple of years and read through the book of Acts, I've become more and more convinced that, that part of what those books record for us are the men and women that followed Jesus in the early day. They're just trying to figure out what in the world just happened. What in the world did we just go through? Because as we're going to see in this study, Jesus literally changes everything. Any expectation that these people had about what the Messiah was going to be, or who he was going to be, or what he was going to do, Jesus throws that out the back door and kicks over the apple cart at every turn he can take. He is going to present a Messiah that nobody had fully foreseen. He's going to present a Savior that nobody had in mind. And so one of the things that has to happen at the beginning is the people need to be prepared for what that's going to look like. John comes to prepare the way. And so he calls the people. As it says in verse 4, John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to come back and talk about that big word repentance here in just a second. Um, Also, there's a lot of things that are tied into these first couple of verses that we're going to come back and discuss um, as it relates to Jesus' ministry, uh, but we're going to do that in future weeks. We're going to talk a lot about the forgiveness of sins. What does that mean? Uh, How does Jesus accomplish that? in a way that's new uh, and different from what had been taking place up to that point. Uh, if you notice, John preaches um, in the next several verses. But in verse 8, he says something that's going to be significant for us. In verse 8, he says, Listen, I have baptized you with water, but he, Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord God, as he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's going to be one of the big things we're going to look at. With the coming of Jesus comes the Holy Spirit and a ministry in a way that had not happened in history up, up to that point. And so a massive thing happens there. We're going to spend a whole week talking about that. In the next several verses then, you get Jesus' baptism. 
Again, very short in Mark. He comes, he's baptized. The Spirit descends on him in a, uh, like a dove, in the form of a dove. The voice comes from heaven. Uh, we've heard that in the other Gospels. The temptation, <laughs> temptation is the shortest in all the Gospels. Two verses. <laughs> Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels began to serve him. I'm going to tell you what, if, if I heard, if, if Mark were all we had if that's the only gospel we had and i heard that but no wait a minute now you got to give us a little more right you just can't lay that out and move on from there what in the world's going on there fortunately matthew and luke give us quite a bit more detail about that the main point uh look at verse 14 here, here jesus now begins his ministry and it happens after john was arrested and and what i think we have in these next several verses is a pattern um, that's kind of behind the scenes and what's going on here that I see repeated throughout the rest of the New Testament. And this pattern that we're going to look at is a pattern that in one way or another, uh, at the heart of it, defines what a disciple of Jesus does and is. So look at what happens. So he says, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news of God. So Jesus goes out, doesn't surprise us, and he's preaching this good news. Some of your translations may have gospel there. Gospel in Greek simply means good news. In fact, I I like it in the English translations when they translate it as good news, because that's what it is. Notice here, uh, it's the good news of God. Uh, Without going into a lot of detail, there's there's different ways that could be interpreted. But let me just say that what I think Jesus means here is that this is the good news both from God and about what God is doing in their midst. So it's a gospel that comes from him, and it's also about what's going on. And he communicates that in the very next verse, 15. Look at what happens. This is part of the preaching of that gospel. The time is fulfilled... The kingdom of God has come near. Now, let me stop right there. I want to take these a uh, piece at a time. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled. As you know, by this time in biblical history, the Jewish people had been looking for this figure to come on the scene that they had started calling the Messiah based on the promises given to King David in the, whole, in the Old Testament era. Uh, the, word, the term Messiah in Hebrew means the anointed one. And if you remember, David and the other kings that came after him, they were anointed as a sign that they were selected by God to be king over the nation of Israel. And so David was the anointed one. He was, in a sense, the Messiah, the Mashiach. But as we start to look at the promises that were given to David, if you remember, uh, the Lord uh, makes promises to David and makes a covenant with him. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, most, most of the Psalms are meditations on the promises that God gave to David. But the promises all concern the fact that God is going to raise up one of David's descendants after him. He's going to give him the throne of David. And that son will reign on the throne of David forever and ever to the point that all the nations would one day come in obedience to him. That's pretty massive. That's absolutely incredible, right? Wow. And, and we know it is. One of my favorite parts uh, in the scriptures in 2 Samuel 7, when right after David uh, receives these promises from God, he goes into the temple 
and he worships before the Lord and he says, listen, who am I that you should make such great promises to me? You got me. I was just a shepherd of the sheep and you pulled me in and and I can't believe you're doing this for me. And as he's meditating on that and just worshiping the Lord, he says something that's so important at the end of it. He says, listen, Lord, I know that this, and I want to be very specific about what he says here and then I'll tell you why he means it. He says, this is Torah for all mankind. This is Torah for all mankind. And when you hear that Hebrew word Torah, you may think the word law. And that really uh, is too myopic. The word Torah in Hebrew means instruction. Now, it may include law, but the primary way that the term is used is to talk about instruction. It's the Lord's instruction. I'm going to tell you what, I didn't figure this out until about eight or nine years ago, and all of a sudden, just this one realization opened up all the scriptures to me, uh, all the Psalms specifically, specifically Psalm 19. David, over and over throughout the Psalms, he says, Oh, how I delight to meditate on the Lord's law, is the way most of the translations have it. But the word in Hebrew is, How I delight to meditate on the, on the Lord's Torah. And let me change that. How I delight to meditate on the Lord's instruction. Right? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you mean, and this is what I used to think as a kid, how do I meditate on thou shalt not kill? You know, there's no meditation is required, right? Uh, when the Lord tells you to do something, you simply do it. Whenever my father would give me instruction, he didn't ask for me to meditate upon it. Right? Boy, I want you to get out and mow the yard. Dad, let me go in and meditate on that a little bit. Let me go think about that for just a little while, right? Now, I could have done that, but severe consequences would have ensued, right? Uh, But when you change it to instruction, and you think about David meditating on it, it changes everything. And that's what David says about these promises. Lord, the promises that you have just given me, they are instruction for all mankind. And what do we need to do? We need to meditate on those promises. And that's what Israel does. That's what Israel does. From the time the last prophet speaks to Israel, Malachi, they begin to meditate on how do we put everything that we've received in the last one and a half thousand years, how do we put it all together? How do these promises given to David relate to the promises given to Abraham? And how do we filter that through the law? How do we make sense out of all this? And they came to this conclusion based on everything that the Lord had revealed. The Lord is going to bring a man who will be a descendant of Abraham. He will be part of our family group. He is a descendant of David. And that son, when he comes, he will be king over Israel. And not just over Israel, but over the entire world. So let's start looking for him. And they do. They're looking for the coming of the Messiah. They're looking for the coming of the son of David. Uh, They're anticipating his his coming. And as Jesus comes on the scene, they are now living at the end of a very, very dark history where the land of Israel has been handed from one people group to another, from one rule to another. And now the most powerful and tyrannical of all, the Romans, have control of them and their land. The land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants forever and ever and ever, they don't even have control over that. So there's great hope. Maybe it's now. 
And the Lord had raised up certain people. Uh, if you remember, Anna in the temple uh, and Simeon, they had been told by the Lord, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. So there was a time of great expectation. And in the midst of this expectation, Jesus comes on the scene. And what does he say? The time is fulfilled. Boy, imagine being in the crowd that day. Jesus is saying, we wait no longer. Nothing else to wait for. Everything is fulfilled. The time is here. And then look at the next thing he says. For the kingdom of God has come near. Older translations have, and I like this a little bit better. For the kingdom of God, well, y'all tell me, what is it? The kingdom of God is at hand. I love that. It's at hand. You can reach out and touch it. You can, it's here. Now, just with that alone, we can see how Jesus is preparing them for, we're about to change everything. We're going to kick the Romans out. I am the Messiah. I am going to reign over Israel. I am the son of David. I am going to reign over all the nations. But, <laughs> as we're going to find out, not in any of the ways you expect. There's a lot to do before any of that happens. There's a lot of things that we've got to accomplish. So right from the beginning, though, notice, he doesn't dash their hopes. He gets them ready for what's about to happen. But then he tells them something very, very important. Look at, look at the next words. Repent and believe in the good news. See that? Repent and believe in the good news. Now, when I was growing up, I used to hear this word repent. And it used to freak me out. Because what I thought the word meant was... Now, this is, yeah, this is just going to be so... Yeah, I hope you all are going to know what I'm talking about. And I don't even know if I can explain it well enough. But basically what I thought repentance was is quit doing all the things that I really love to do in order for me to follow Jesus. And it just so happens that the things I love to do are also sinful. You know what I'm saying? So, in other words, you've you got to clean yourself up before you can even follow Jesus. And I remember sitting in church um, I, I, my whole life. I've grown up in church. I don't have any memory at all uh, when my family was not in church, uh, you, you know, or around Christian people. One of my earliest memories, I've told this before, one of my absolute earliest memories, and I have to be four or five, somewhere in there, uh, and simply because of when it happened and where it happened. I was sitting in my mom and dad's bedroom, it was around Christmas time, and my mom was reading uh, one of the narratives from the Gospels about the birth of Jesus. And of course, the Virgin Mary pops up, uh, right? Uh, to be born to the Virgin Mary. And I remember looking at her saying, Mama, what is a virgin? And I can still see the look on her face of, how do I tell him what that is? Right? <laughs> wow. You know. She gave a great answer, though. She said, it's, it's a woman who's still pure. She hasn't been touched by anything that would make her unacceptable to the Lord God. To this day, I think, that's probably a pretty good answer. That's a real good answer, in fact. Um, but nevertheless, I, I grew up around Christianity my whole life. It's, it's been lived in the church. And I used to think that this repentance was, you've got to get everything straightened out uh, before you can even be on the right path. And that used to scare me to death because I used to think, man, I've got a lot of things to straighten out. And the harder I try to straighten these things out, the worse trouble I get into. In fact, in my teenage years, I, I was in such depression. I thought, you know... If it's getting everything worked out before I can follow Jesus, well, I can just give up. I'm going to go and do whatever I want to because I'm not making any progress in it whatsoever. Uh, until you realize it's not what Jesus is talking about here. Not, not yet. 
Because there's something that, that precedes all of that that's really important. This, this word in Greek is the word metanoia. That won't communicate a whole lot to you. Metanoia. But the thing that, that I do want you to focus on, because this communicate even in our culture, is the prefix in that word, meta, M-E-T-A. That is a word that has come back in vogue in the last 20 years in a lot of different ways. You have probably heard the term meta-narrative. Meta-narrative is the larger story. Uh, a a meta-narrative is a story big enough to explain all the other stories that are underneath it. A meta-narrative is a, is a story that answers the question, where have we come from, where are we headed, and why are we here? If you've got a narrative that tells you that, then you can figure out what's going on with all the other smaller stories. So we call it the meta-narrative. It's the narrative above that explains all the other narratives. You've probably heard the word metadata. Now that we've become more, you know, now that these things have us by hooked in every orifice that we got, right? We can't get clear of these things. And all these things run on metadata. Metadata is the data about the data, right? It's the data that I need to explain all the other billions of pieces of information about me flying around on the web and everything else. That's all collected in terms of metadata. So it's the larger chunking of data. When we use the word metanoia, The idea is this. It's the thinking that we need to do about the way we're thinking. If I could say it that way. And what, if, if I could, if I could trans, uh, if I could just, uh, paraphrase it this way. This is what Jesus is saying. You're gonna have to rethink everything. The kingdom is at hand. You're gonna have to change the way you are thinking about everything. You're going to have to rethink your thinking. That's what it means first and foremost. And this is why they're going to have to do that. Because he is not going to live up to their low expectations about what the Messiah ought to be. He's going to go far beyond that. And he's going to call them into things that they're not even halfway prepared for. Just go through and read the disciples as they're trying to follow Jesus and the things that he calls them to do and the things that he calls them into. And you see that they're not prepared. And so what do they have to do? They have to rethink everything. When Jesus first starts to teach them, listen, not many days, boys. I'm going up to Jerusalem. They're going to beat me. They're going to flog me. They're going to humiliate me. They're going to kill me. But I'll be back in three days. Remember, first time Peter hears that, what does he say? Oh, no, he ain't. No. I'm not going to let that happen. All right. What does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you've got to change the way you're thinking about this. You've got to change the way you understand this. This is the first step. This is the first step. And and let me just say this. This is not something we do once. (laughs) This is something that every time you run into Jesus... If you really have an encounter with him, you're going to leave it having to do this. You're going to leave the encounter with Jesus having to rethink something. Because that's, that's the way he is. I'm going to tell you why. The, one of the most... I, I, I'm just going to tell you, I quit praying this about six months ago. There was about a year where I was getting up in the morning and I would say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? I quit praying that. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Because when I really prayed that, the Lord would always give me something that was too hard for me to do that day. And something I had to trust Him to do for me and in me and through me. I don't like that. We don't like that. Right? We want to be able to do it. Uh, but this is what He's calling us to. Right? Lord, we've got to... 
we got to rethink something. We've got we to gotta come at this from a different direction. We've got to rethink the way we're thinking of it. But then he gives us help. Check out the next thing. Repent and believe in the good news. Believe in the good news. Now, I'm going to come back next couple of weeks and we're going to talk about what that believing in the good news looks like. Uh, so let me just hold that out there for just a second. The last step in this, you, you can see it in the next several verses. Uh, Jesus goes along by the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon, Andrew, Simon's brother, the casting a net. The, the passage that we read earlier tonight uh, was about uh, a similar time that this happens. And uh, Jesus completely overwhelms them. But after they've been fishing all night, they're tired. And he says, let's go back out and fish some, some more. So this is in that same general episode. And so notice Jesus as he comes to them. Uh, verse 17, this is what he calls these fishermen to do. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Now look at what they do. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. We know from the passage we read in Luke from the other Gospels, a lot more happened then. Uh, They saw Jesus do things. They heard Jesus teach. So it wasn't like he just says this and then they follow him. They've seen him. They've interacted with him. And after they've thought about what just happened, they've had to rethink something. They rethink their role as fishermen. Peter and Andrew and James and John, they, they begin to follow Jesus. And that's what happens at the end of this episode as well. Now, let me show you the pattern here. Notice what happens. Number one, the good news is preached. You see that? And, and, and part of that good news is, and it still is today, and I'm going to hopefully you'll believe this by the time we get to the end of this, but it's still the same thing. Everything is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the kingdom of heaven is already, in part, at hand for us. Now, it's not here in full glory. Don't get me wrong. Uh, the full reality of what's going on. But you and I, as followers of Jesus, we are emissaries of His kingdom. And wherever we go representing His kingship, part of what He wants us to do is to give the people that we interface with a taste of that kingdom. And so it always has to be at hand. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the study. So the good news is proclaimed. And that good news is the kingdom is at hand. Everything's fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Then we have to repent. Believe the good news. By the way, those two things are going to work together. We've got to change the way we're thinking about everything so that we can believe this good news. And then we've got to follow. So we hear the gospel. And if I could say this word, we turn. That's the repentance stuff. Uh, in fact, repentance is what I call a personal revolution. The word that's most often translated with this word uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament was simply the Hebrew word shuv, to turn. You need to turn from your wicked ways. Turn to the Lord God. So we're turning away from something, turning to God. And that, that's the idea, another key way that uh, repentance, I think, is understood. We hear the gospel. We turn, we turn away from idolatry, turn to God. We'll talk about this in some coming weeks. We believe the gospel, and then we follow Jesus. And I just say it this way. We hear, we turn, we trust, and we follow. Hear, turn, trust, follow. I hear, I turn, I trust Jesus, and then I follow. That is a pattern that I think he calls us to almost every day of our lives. That's that's the pattern of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We hear His Word. We hear His truth. We turn away from anything else that's not in line with that truth. We turn toward Him. 
and looking at him and hearing him, we trust him and we follow him. And things have to happen in that order. They have to happen in that order. Because I'm going to tell you what, you don't trust Jesus until you first decide, no, I've got to change the way I'm thinking about that. Right? I'm going to turn away from whatever may be keeping me from believing in that. And then I trust Him. And then once I trust Him, I'm going to follow Him. And you all know this, you're never going to follow Him if you don't trust Him. And let me say that this is one of the things that, that, that I'm worried about in the modern church is that we're focusing so much on people following Jesus that we don't deal with the things that have to happen before we actually get there. Uh, this shows up in a lot of ways. And one of the critical ways that I see it show up is we're, we're, we're talking a lot about training people to make disciples in the church. And that's a good thing. We ought to be doing that. But here's the problem I have with that. You can't make a disciple until you are a disciple. You've got to go through this process every day. Because being a disciple of Jesus is not just knowing facts and information about Him. It's knowing Him in a way so that when somebody comes into contact with you, they too are interfaced with the reality of Jesus in a way that has to cause them to rethink everything that's going on. And that's what I think Jesus wants us to be. That's what he calls us to be. And so in the next uh, several weeks, we're going to go through all these things and develop them out and see the different specific ways that Jesus causes us to re-see things and to look at things in a new way. And as he does, we're going to be going through this process. We're going to hear from Jesus. We're going to turn away from the things that are not in line with his truth. We're going to trust him and then we're going to follow him as he leads us wherever he leads us whatever he calls us to do let me just say for each of us in this room it's going to be different and 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 my prayer by the end of this study is number one we'll all know jesus more deeply and that you as an individual hopefully will have some way in which you realize jesus wants you to follow him in a way that you haven't thought about before or he's, following, he's asking you to follow him into something that you have not followed him into before. And, and that's my prayer for all of us, for me too. And I don't like praying that because it's going to be scary. <laughs> and it's going to be hard. But man, when you do, the joy that comes along with it, that's what we want to shoot for. Let me close this in prayer and give the benediction. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us together to study tonight together in your word. We've just skimmed the surface over uh, some of these things that we're going to be uh, developing over the next several weeks. And, And Lord, I pray first and foremost that we can keep our Lord Jesus central to our thoughts, that we can learn to focus on him as the source of all that is good and true and worth knowing. Uh, that He is the source of our joy and our hope. And apart from Him, we cannot know the world correctly. We cannot know ourselves correctly. And therefore, we'll totally be uh, untethered and unanchored from reality itself and from the treasure that you wish for us to receive through our knowledge in Him. And so, Father, I pray as we go forward, you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and give us hearts that are compliant and willing to turn from all uh, that Jesus offers to us and teaches us and guides us in so that we can focus on Him truly and let Him be the one that changes everything about us and everything about our world and everything uh, that is important and valuable and eternal. And so we ask all these things for Jesus' great namesake. Amen.